CD3. But to all intents and purposes, it's Martin Borman who runs the show up here, said Caspel. I folded my arms across my chest and pulled hard on my cigarette, which seemed to bother Hergel. He waved the smoke back at me. Just to let you know, smoking is not permitted anywhere on the Kelstein, said Hergel. The leader has a very keen nose for tobacco and doesn't care for it in the least. Even when he's not here? Even when he's not here. That really is a keen sense of smell. Finally, we reached the top of the road, where an impressive sight awaited me. In a large stone-clad entranceway at the bottom of an almost sheer mountain slope was a pair of arched bronze doors as big as an African elephant, and they opened as we pulled up to them. Of course, like any German, I knew the legend that the Emperor Friedrich Barbarossa, although some say it was Charlemagne, was asleep inside these mountains awaiting the great battle that would herald the end of the world. But I hadn't ever thought to discover he was expecting visitors. This was another joke I kept to myself. I couldn't have felt more intimidated if I'd been summoned to meet the Troll King to discuss his daughter's unfortunate condition. The open doors revealed a long, perfectly straight tunnel, which might easily have admitted the passage of the big Mercedes, but I was told we had to get out and walk. Only the leader is permitted to drive to the end of this tunnel, explained Hergel. For everyone else, it's the shoemaker's penny. I'm happy to stretch my legs a bit, I said bravely. It's ten hours from Berlin. Besides, all pilgrimages should end on foot, don't you think? I finished my cigarette quickly, tossed it onto the road, and followed Hergel and his deputy down the length of the brightly lit marble tunnel. I ran my hand along the wall and glanced up at the cast-iron light fittings as we walked. Everything was new and spotlessly clean. Even the U-Bahn station at Friedrichstrasse wasn't as new or well-made as this place. Is this where the leader lives? I asked. No, this is the way up to the tea house explained Caspel. The tea house? I can't wait to see what the ballroom looks like, not to mention the cocktail bar in the master bedroom. The leader doesn't drink, said Caspel. This information was enough to restore my faith in at least two of my bad habits. Maybe they weren't such bad habits after all. At the end of the tunnel, Hergel looked up. The tea house is 130 meters above our heads, he said, and then announced our presence into a microphone that was built into the wall. We were standing in a large, round, vaulted chamber, the sort of place where you might have expected to find a priceless sarcophagus, or perhaps a treasure belonging to at least 40 thieves. But instead, there was a set of elevator doors, which could have been gold they were so brightly polished, but even as I was assuring myself they were more probably brass, I began to feel uneasy in a way I'd never felt before. It was perhaps the first time I realized the true extent of Adolf Hitler's apparent divinity. If this was a representative example of the way our Chancellor lived, then Germany was in a lot more trouble than even I had realized. The elevator doors parted to reveal a mirrored car with a leather bench seat and its own RSD operator. We stepped inside and the brass doors closed again. 
powered by two engines, said Hergel, one electric and a backup diesel engine that was taken from a U-boat. That should come in handy if there's a flood. Please, said Hergel. No comedians. The deputy chief of staff doesn't have a sense of humor. Sorry. I smiled nervously as the elevator car rose up the shaft. It was the smoothest elevator ride I'd ever taken, although I had the strong idea that it should have been traveling in the opposite direction. Then the doors opened, and I was ushered through a doorway in what looked like a main dining room, down some steps, and straight into the presence of Martin Borman. Chapter 10 April 1939 He wasn't tall, and at first I didn't see him. I was too busy staring in wonder at the Kelstein reception hall, where everyone was waiting for me. It was a large, round room, perfectly proportioned, made of gray granite blocks, with a coffered ceiling and a marble fireplace that was the size and color of an S-Bahn train. Above the fireplace was a gobelin tapestry featuring a couple of bucolic lovers, and on the floor was an expensive crimson Persian rug. In front of the red fireplace, a circular table was surrounded by comfortable armchairs that made me feel tired just looking at them. There were no curtains on the big square windows that provided an unimpeded mountaintop view of a dark and stormy night. Light snow was dusting the glass, and outside the window I could hear the lanyard shifting in the wind on a tin flagpole like the clapper in a tiny bell. It was a good night to be inside, especially on top of a mountain. A log the size of the Sudetenland was smoking in the grate, and on the walls were several electric candelabra that looked as if they'd been placed there by a mad scientist's faithful retainer. There was a mahogany grand piano and a small rectangular table and some more chairs, and in another doorway a man wearing a white SS mess jacket with a silver tray under his arm. It was a room with the kind of rarefied atmosphere in which some men might have thought they could decide the future of the world, but it made my ears feel as if someone had pulled a cork out of my skull, although that could as easily have been the sight of an open flask of grassle on the table, prompting the sudden realization that I needed a drink that wasn't tea. Only one of the five men around the table was in uniform, but I knew he couldn't be Borman, as the man had only a colonel's helping of cauliflower on his SS collar badge. He was also the one man who got to his feet and returned my Hitler salute, politely. The others, including the pugilistic-looking type who now took charge of things in the tea house, and whom I guessed was probably Martin Borman, remained firmly seated. I didn't blame any of them much for not wanting to get up to greet me. Sudden movements like that at such high altitude can give you a nosebleed. Besides, the chairs really did look very comfortable. And after all, I was just a copper from Berlin. Kommissar Gunther, I presume? asked Borman. How do you do, sir? You're here at long last. We would have had you flown here, but there wasn't a plane available. Anyway, sit down, sit down. You've come a long way. I expect you're tired. I'm sorry about that, but it really can't be helped. Are you hungry? Of course you are. 
He was already snapping his fingers in the air, strong, fat fingers that were wholly unsuitable for something as delicate as a tea house to summon the man in the SS mess jacket. Fetch our guest something to eat. What would you like, Commissar? A sandwich? Some coffee? I couldn't place the man's accent. Perhaps it was Saxon. It certainly wasn't an educated sort of voice. He was right about one thing, however. I was as hungry as a threshing machine. Huggle and Caspel had sat down at the table as well, but Borman didn't offer them anything. I soon realized that he was wont to treat the men who worked for him with open contempt and brutality. Perhaps a slice of bread with mustard and some sausage, sir, and maybe a cup of coffee. Borman nodded at the waiter, who went to fetch my dinner. First of all, do you know who I am? You're Martin Borman. And what do you know about me? From what I've been told, you're the leader's right-hand man here in the Alps. Is that it? Borman uttered a scornful laugh. I thought you were a detective. Isn't that enough? Hitler's no ordinary leader. But it's not just here, you know. No. I'm his right-hand man in the rest of Germany, too. Anyone else you've ever heard of as being a person who's close to the leader? Goering, Himmler, Goebbels, Hess? Believe me, they don't amount to shit when I'm around. The fact is that if any of them wants to see Hitler, they have to come through me. So when I talk, it's as if the leader were here now, telling you what the fuck to do. Is that clear? Very clear. Good. Borman nodded at the bottle of schnapps on the table. Would you like a drink? No, sir. Not when I'm on duty. I'll decide if you're on duty, Commissar. I haven't yet made up my mind if you're the real deal or not. Until then, have a drink. Relax. That's what this place is all about. It's brand new. Even the leader hasn't seen it yet, so you're very privileged. We're here tonight because we're field-testing the place, seeing that everything works before he gets here. That's why you can't smoke, I'm afraid. The leader always knows when someone's been smoking, even in secret. I've never known a man with such heightened senses. He shrugged. Not that I should be surprised, of course. He's the most extraordinary man I've ever met. If you don't mind me asking, sir, why a tea house? Borman poured me a glass of schnapps and handed it to me with those fat fingers of his. I sipped it carefully. At fifty percent proof, it rated a bit of caution, just like the man who'd poured it. There was a larger scar above his right eye, and with his plus-four trousers and thick tweed jacket, he had the look of a prosperous farmer who didn't mind kicking his prize pig. Not fat, but a burly middleweight going a seed with a proper double chin and a nose like a parboiled turnip. Because the leader likes tea, of course. Stupid question, really. He already has a tea house just across the valley from the Berghof, the Muslanakov, which he enjoys walking to. But it was thought that perhaps something more spectacular was fitting for a man of such vision. In daylight, the views from this room are breathtaking. You might almost say that this tea house is designed to help provide him with some necessary inspiration. I can imagine. Do you like the Alps, Herr Gunther? They're a little too far off the ground for me to feel quite comfortable. I'm more of a city boy. The bean pole, that is the Berlin radio tower, is quite high enough for me. He smiled patiently.
Tell me about yourself. I sipped some schnapps and leaned back in my armchair and then sipped some more. I was dying for a smoke, and a couple of times I even reached for my cigarette case before I remembered how health-conscious they were in Obersalzburg. I glanced at the faces of the other knights seated at this particular round table and perceived that perhaps I wasn't the only one who needed a cigarette. I'm a Berliner, through and through, which means I'm just naturally opinionated. Not necessarily in a good way. I got my abattoir, and I might have gone to university, but for the war. I saw enough in the trenches to persuade me that I like mud even less than snow. I joined the Berlin police right after the armistice, made detective, worked in the murder commission, solved a few cases, was on my own for a while, a private investigator, and I was doing all right for myself, making good money, until General Heydrich persuaded me to come back to Crippo. Heydrich says you're his best detective, is that really true? Or are you just some fritz he's sent down here to spy on me? I know how to work a case by the book when that's what's required. And what book might that be? The Prussian General Code of 1794, the Police Administration Law of 1931. Ah, that kind of book. The old kind. The legal kind. Does Heydrich still pay attention to that sort of thing? To the letter of the pre-Nazi law? More often than you might think. But you don't like working for Heydrich, do you? At least that's what he tells me. It has its interesting side. He keeps me around because, for me, work is the best jacket. I don't like to take it off until I've worn it out and then some. Tenacity and a solid propensity to obstinacy are forensic qualities the general seems to appreciate. He tells me you've got a lot of snout, too. I certainly don't mean to be that way, sir. To other Germans, we Berliners seem to be insolent when we're not. About a hundred years ago, we worked out that there's no point in being friendly and polite if no one else appreciates it. No one in Berlin, that is. So now we please ourselves. Bormann shrugged. That's honest enough. But I'm still not convinced you're the right fist for this particular eye, Gunther. With all due respect, sir, neither am I. With most murder cases, I'm usually not required to audition for the job. On the whole, the dead don't mind much who gives them their last manicure. And I'm not about to convince a man as important as yourself of anything, probably. I wouldn't presume even to try. The kind of Fritz who can talk a hole through someone's stomach, that isn't me. These days, there's not much of a market for what's laughingly called my personality. I certainly didn't bring any of my favorite music to put in your nice Beckstein. But you did bring your own piano player, didn't you? Korsh, he's my criminal assistant, in Berlin, and a good man. We work well together. You won't need him while you're here. My men will give you all the assistance you need. The fewer people who know about what's happened here, the better. With all due respect, sir, he's a good copper. Sometimes it helps to have another brain I can borrow, to add another tooth just when I need to chew something hard. Even the best men need a good deputy, someone trustworthy they can rely on who won't let them down. That would seem to be as true here as anywhere else. It was supposed to be a compliment, and I hoped he'd see it that way, but he had the most pugnacious jaw I'd seen outside of a boxing ring. 
I had the sense that at any moment he might grab me by the throat or have me thrown from the battlements. If a mountaintop tea house has such a thing as battlements, this was the first tea house I'd been in that looked as if it could have kept the Red Army at bay. Perhaps that was the real reason it had been built, and I didn't doubt that inside the rest of Hitler's mountain were other secrets I might prefer not to know about. It was enough to make me finish the schnapps a little more quickly than I ought to have done. Borman rubbed his roughening midnight chin thoughtfully. All right, all right, keep the bastard. But he stays down at the Villa Beckstein. Outside the leader's territory, is that clear? If you want to pick his brains, you do it there. Chapter 11, April 1939 Borman leaned forward and poured me another drink. I would have preferred a Bavarian up here. The leader thinks Bavarians have a better understanding of how things work on this mountain. I think you're probably just another Prussian bastard. But you're my kind of bastard. I like a man with some blood in his veins. You're not like a lot of these albino Gestapo types that Heydrich and Himmler grow on a Petri dish in some fucking science lab. Which means you've got the job. You're acting with my full authority, at least until you screw up. I steadied the glass as he filled it to the top, which is the way I like my schnapps served, and tried to look like I was taking a compliment. Either way, when this is all over and you've caught this bastard, it never happened, do you hear? The last thing I want is for the German people to think that security here is so lax that every cretian pletty can just stroll up the hill from Berchtesgaden and take a pot shot at their beloved leader outside his own front door. So you'll sign a confidentiality agreement and you'll like it. Borman nodded at the man next to him, who produced a sheet of printed paper and a pen and placed them in front of me. I glanced over it quickly. What's this? I asked. Next to Kin? What it says, said Borman. I don't have a next of kin. A wife? Not anymore. Then put your girlfriend down, Borman grinned unpleasantly. Or the name and address of someone you really care about in case you've screwed up, or you're about to open your trap and we have to threaten to take it out on someone else. He made it sound entirely reasonable that this was how things were done how a policeman who failed to catch a murderer would be treated by the state. I thought for a moment, and then wrote down the name of Hildegard Steininger and her address in Berlin's Lepsiusstrasse. It had been six months since she'd been my girlfriend, and I hadn't liked it very much when I found out that she was seeing someone else, some shiny-looking major in the SS. I hadn't liked it at all, so I suppose I didn't give a damn if Borman ever decided to punish her for my shortcomings. It was small-minded, even vindictive, and I'm not proud of what I did. But I wrote her name down all the same. Sometimes true love comes with a black ribbon on the box. So, to find the hammer and the nails, said Borman, let's get to the reason why you've been brought all the way from Berlin. I'm one big ear, sir. At this moment, the SS waiter arrived back at the table with a tray bearing the food and the coffee, for which I was especially grateful since the armchair was extremely comfortable. 
This morning at eight o'clock, there was a breakfast meeting at the Berghof. That's the leader's own house, which is next to mine, a few meters farther down the mountain. The people present at this meeting were largely architects, engineers, and civil servants, and the purpose of the meeting was to consider what further improvements might be made at the Berghof and in Obersalzburg for the convenience, enjoyment, and security of the leader. I suppose there must have been about ten or fifteen men who were present, perhaps a few more. After breakfast, about nine o'clock, these men went out onto the terrace that overlooks the area. At 9.15 a.m., one of these men, Dr. Karl Flex, collapsed onto the terrace, bleeding profusely from a head wound. He'd been shot, most probably with a rifle, and died at the scene. No one else was wounded, and, curiously, no one seems to have heard a thing. As soon as it was established that he had been shot, the RSD cleared the building and conducted an immediate search of the woods and mountainsides that directly overlooked the Berghof Terrace. But so far no trace of the assassin has been found. Can you believe it? All these SS and RSD and they can't find a single clue. I nodded and kept eating my sausage, which was delicious. I don't have to tell you how serious this is, said Borman. Having said that, I don't think this was connected with the leader, whose movements today and yesterday have been widely reported in the newspapers. But until the killer is apprehended, it will be quite impossible for Hitler to go near that terrace. And as you will doubtless be aware, it's his 50th birthday on April 20th. He always comes here to Obersalzburg on or just after his birthday. This year will be no exception. Which means you have seven days to solve this crime, do you hear? It's imperative that this murderer is caught before April 20th, because I certainly don't want to be the man who tells him he can't go outside because there's an assassin on the loose. I put down my sausage, wiped my mouth clean of mustard, and nodded. I'll do my best, sir, I said firmly. You can rely on that. I don't want your best, shouted Borman. I want better than your best, whatever that particular heap of shit amounts to. You're not in Berlin now. You're in Obersalzburg. Your best may be good enough for that Jew Heydrich, but you're working for me now. And that's as good as working for Adolf Hitler. Is that clear? I want this man under a falling axe before the end of the month. Yes, sir. I nodded again. Where Bormann was concerned... Nodding silently was probably the best response. You have my word that I'll give it everything I've got. Rest assured, sir, I'll catch him. That's more like it, said Borman. First thing in the morning, I added, stifling a yawn. I'll get right on it. Fuck that, yelled Borman, banging the tabletop. My white china cup jumped on the monogram blue saucer as if the Kelstein had been hit by an avalanche. You'll get on it right now! That's why you're here! Every hour that we don't catch this swine is an hour too long! Borman looked around for the waiter, and then at one of the men seated around the table. Bring this man some more hot coffee. Better still, give him a packet of Perviton. That should help to keep him on his toes. The object of Borman's command reached into his jacket pocket and took out a little metallic blue-and-white tube, which he handed to me. I glanced at it briefly, but all I saw was the manufacturer's name, Temmler, which was a Berlin pharmaceutical company. What is this? I asked. 
Up here, it's what we call Hermann Temmler's magic potion, said Bormann. German Coca-Cola. Helps the workforce at the Obersalzburg keep up with the construction schedule. You see, they are only permitted to work when Hitler's not here, so as not to disturb him, which means that when he's somewhere else, they have to work twice as long and twice as hard. That stuff helps. Goering's considering giving it to bomber crews to help them stay awake. So, take two with your coffee. That should put a bit more spring in your Hitler salute, which looked like shit, by the way. I know you've had a long journey and you're tired, but round here that's just not good enough, Gunther. Next time I'll kick your ass myself. I swallowed two of the tablets uncomfortably and apologized, but he was right, of course. My Hitler salute was always a bit slack. That's what comes of not being a Nazi, I suppose. Have there been any previous shooting incidents at the Berghof? Bormann glanced at the man wearing an SS colonel's uniform. What's the story, Rattenhuber? The colonel nodded. There was an incident about six months ago. A Swiss called Maurice Baveau came up here planning to shoot the leader, but he abandoned it at the last moment and made his escape. He was finally apprehended by the French police, who turned him over to us. He's now in a Berlin prison awaiting trial and execution. But Bormann was shaking his head. That was nothing like a serious attempt, he said scornfully, and then looked at me. Colonel Rattenhuber is head of the RSD with responsibility for securing the leader's person, wherever he is. At least that's the theory. In point of fact, Bavo was armed only with a pistol, not a rifle. And he planned to shoot Hitler when he came down to the bottom of his drive to greet some well-wishers. But Bavo lost his nerve. So, Herr Gunther, I think the simple answer to your question is no. This is the first time someone has fired a shot at anyone in this vicinity. Nothing like this has ever happened here before. This is a harmonious community. This is not Berlin. This is not Hamburg. Berchtesgaden and Obersalzburg constitute a peaceful rural idyll in which decent family values and a strong sense of morality prevail. That's why the leader has always enjoyed coming here. All right. Tell me a bit more about the dead man. Did he have any enemies that anyone knows of? Flex? Bormann shook his head. He worked for Bruno Schenk, one of my most trusted people on the mountain. Both men were employees of Polensky and Zollner, a Berlin company that handles most of the construction work in Obersalzburg and Berchtesgaden. Karl Flex wasn't RSD or political, he was a civil engineer, a diligent and much-admired servant who had lived here for several years. Possibly there was someone who didn't admire him quite as much as you did, sir. While Borman was absorbing my jab, I followed up quickly with a couple of punches to his body. Like the man who shot him, for instance. Then again, perhaps there was more than one man involved. To get past all the security up here must have taken some planning and organization. Which is to say we might be talking about a conspiracy. For once, Borman stayed silent as he considered this possibility. Me... I just hoped I'd spoiled the cozy concept of his tea house with its monogrammed china and its expensive gobelin tapestry. How much had it cost to build this Nazi folly? Millions, probably. Money that could have been spent on something more important than the comfort of the madman who now ruled Germany. 
Witness statements, I asked. Have they been taken? I've had them ronioed for you, said Hergel. The originals have already been sent to Berlin, for the attention of the Reichsführer SS. He's taking a personal interest in this case. I shall want to read them all. And where's the body? I'll need to take a look at it. At the local hospital, said Rattenhuber, down in Berchtesgaden. There will need to be an autopsy, of course, I added, with photographs, the sooner the better. The man was shot, said Borman. Surely that's obvious. What more could an autopsy tell you? A little thing can remain unknown even though it's obvious. Or, put another way, nothing evades our attention as persistently as that which we take for granted. That's just philosophy, sir. Nothing is obvious until it's obvious. So I shall have to insist on an autopsy if I'm to do my job properly. Is there a doctor at this hospital who might carry out such a procedure? I doubt it, said Rattenhuber. The Dietrich Eckhart is set up to look after the living, not to take care of the dead. No matter, I said. I suggest you get Dr. Valdemar Weimann from Berlin. Frankly, he's the best there is. And from what you've already told me, I can't imagine we want anything less than that for a case like this. That's quite impossible, said Bormann. As I said, I want to keep a tight lid on this. I don't trust doctors from Berlin. I shall ask one of the leader's own physicians to carry out an autopsy. Dr. Karl Brandt. I'm sure he's equal to the task, if you really think it's necessary. I do. I shall have to be present, of course. I was silent for a moment, seemingly lost in thought. But in truth, I was just assessing the effect that the Perviton was now having on me. Already, I felt more alert and energetic, and bolder, too bold enough to start taking charge and making demands. Borman wasn't the only one who could sound as if he knew what he wanted. I should also like to visit the crime scene tonight, so you'd better arrange some arc lights and a tape measure, and I shall want to speak to everyone who was on the terrace this morning, as soon as is convenient. Also, I will need an office with a desk with two telephones, a filing cabinet with a lock, a car and a driver on permanent call, coffee-making facilities, a large map of the area, some lengths of dowel, the longer the better, a camera, a Leica 3A with a 50mm f2 retractable Samar lens should be just fine, and several rolls of black-and-white film, the slower the better, not color, takes too long to process. Why do you need a camera? asked Borman. With more than a dozen witnesses on the terrace when Dr. Flex was shot, it will help me if I can put some faces to the names. I could feel the stuff surging through me now. Suddenly, I really wanted to find and catch the Berghoff killer, and maybe tear his head off. And I'll need plenty of cigarettes. I can't work without them, I'm afraid. Cigarettes help me think. I appreciate that it's forbidden to smoke anywhere that the leader is likely to be, so I shall smoke outside, of course. What else? Yes, some winter boots. I've only come with shoes, I'm afraid, and I may need to do some walking in snow. Size 43, please. And a coat. I'm freezing. Very well, said Borman. But I shall want all of the prints and negatives to be handed over when you leave. Of course. Speak to Arthur Cannenberg at the Berghof. Borman told the man sitting next to him, Tell him that Commissar Gunther is going to use one of the guest rooms as his office. 
Xander, Hergel, make sure that everything else he wants is made available to him. Kasperl, you show him the Berghoff Terrace. Borman stood up, which was everyone's cue to do the same, except me. I stayed put in my armchair for a long moment, as if I were still lost in thought. But of course it was nothing more than dumb insolence, paying him back in kind for his bad manners. I already hated Martin Borman as much as I'd hated any Nazi, including Heydrich and Goebbels. There is evil in the best of us, of course, but perhaps just a little bit more in the worst of us. Chapter 12, April 1939 Once upon a time, the Berghof or the Haus Wachenfeld, as it was then called, had been a simple two-story farmhouse with a long sloping roof, overhanging eaves, a wooden porch, and a picture-postcard view of Berchtesgaden and the Untersberg. These days it was a much expanded and rather less cozy structure, with a vast panoramic window, garages, a terrace, and a recently built low wing to the east of the house that resembled a military barracks. I wasn't sure who stayed in the East Wing, but it probably wasn't the military because a large contingent of SS already occupied a former hotel. The Turkin Inn, less than 50 meters farther to the east of the Berghof and immediately below Bormann's own house in Obersalzburg, which seemed to command a better position than Hitler's. The Berghof's front terrace was about the size of a tennis court with a low wall. It backed onto a larger secondary terrace, which in turn bordered a lawn to the west. Behind the secondary terrace were what looked like additional living quarters, styled in the local vernacular, which is to say they looked like a row of cuckoo clocks. On my instruction, several SS men were erecting a number of arc lights on the front terrace so that I might inspect the crime scene, although the only evidence of a crime was the chalk outline of a man's fallen body just behind the low wall. On Borman's instructions, any blood from Flex's corpse had been washed away. Playing the part of the dead man and muffled in his black SS greatcoat, Captain Caspel took up a position on the terrace to help me understand where Flex had been standing when he'd been shot. The light snow and the wind did not encourage lingering, and he stamped his boots to help keep warm. Although he might just have been imagining he was stamping on my face. Not very tall, shaven-headed, hook-nosed, and with a wide mouth, Caspel was a thinner, more sensitive, and better-looking version of Benito Mussolini. Flex was standing about here, explained Caspel. According to the witness statements, he was in a group of three or four men, most of whom were looking at the Reiter Alper to the west. Several of the witnesses are sure that the shooter must have fired from a group of trees on a mountain slope behind the house over there to the west. In the arc light, I glanced over one of the witness statements and nodded. Except that no one seems to have heard a thing, I said. The first any of them really know about the shooting is when the victim is lying on this terrace with blood pouring from his head. Caspel shrugged. Don't ask me, Gunther. You're the great detective. I hadn't yet been alone with Caspel, which meant I hadn't had a chance to give him Heydrich's letter ordering him to put himself under my command so he was still treating me with understandable disdain. It was clear he hadn't forgotten or forgiven anything about 1932 and how I'd helped to get him fired from the Berlin police.
What were the weather conditions like when Flex was shot? Clear and sunny. Caspel blew on his hands. Not like this. I might have felt the cold more myself, except for the fact that the pills I'd taken seemed to be having an effect on my body temperature, too. I was as warm as if I'd still been in the car. Were any of these men wearing uniform? No, it seems they were all civilians. Then I wonder how the shooter picked them out, I said. Telescopic sight, binoculars, a hunter, perhaps? Perhaps. Good eyesight, I don't know, go figure. It seems to have been at least a minute or two before any of them worked out that Flex had been shot, at which point they finally retreated indoors. For a moment, I lay down beside the chalk outline and stretched out on the cold paving stones. Did you know the dead man, Flex? Only by sight. Seems as if he was tall. I got up again and dusted the snow off my coat. I'm 188 centimeters, but it looks to me as if Flex was possibly seven or eight centimeters taller. Sounds about right, said Caspel. Have you ever used a rifle scope? Can't say that I have. Even the best IAC rifle scope will only put you four times nearer your target. So perhaps the victim's height helped the shooter. Perhaps he knew that all he had to do was shoot the tallest man. But we'll have a clearer view of what happened when it's daybreak. I glanced at my wristwatch, saw that it was 2 a.m., and realized I didn't feel the least bit tired. Which is in five or six hours from now. I took the tube of Pervitin out of my pocket and regarded it with some incredulity. My God, what is this stuff? I have to admit, it's kind of wonderful. I could have used some Pervitin when I was still pounding the beat. It's methamphetamine hydrochloride. It packs quite a punch, doesn't it? Frankly, I've learned to be a bit wary of the local magic potion. After a while, there are side effects. Such as? You'll find out soon enough. Go ahead and scare me, Herman. I can take it. For one thing, it's addictive. A lot of people on this mountain have come to rely on Pervitin. And after two or three days solid on that stuff, there's always the risk that you'll have violent mood swings, heart palpitations, or even cardiac arrest. Then I'll just have to hope for the best. Now that Borman's got my ears stiff about this, I really don't see any other way of working around the clock, do you? No. Caspel grinned. Sounds like Hydrix really dropped you in the shit with this case. And I'm going to enjoy watching you fall on your ugly face, Gunther. Or worse. Just don't expect me to give you the kiss of life. The only people Mrs. Caspel likes me to kiss is Mrs. Caspel. Farther up the mountain, or so it seemed, I heard what sounded like an explosion. And seeing my head turn, Caspel said, Construction workers on the other side of the Kelstein. I think they're digging another tunnel through the mountain. Somewhere a telephone was ringing, and a few moments later an SS man stepped out onto the terrace, saluted smartly, handed me the Leica and several rolls of film, and announced that Dr. Brandt was now awaiting our arrival at the hospital down in Berchtesgaden. We'd better not keep the doctor waiting, I said. Let's hope he's using this stuff, too. I hate a sloppy post-mortem. Will you drive me down the mountain, please? We walked down the steps of the Berghof Terrace to where we'd left Caspel's car parked in front of the garage. I thought about asking him to stop at the Villa Beckstein to pick up Korsh 
and then decided against it. If he had any sense, he was in bed by now, which seemed a long way off for me. And don't expect me to hold a kidney dish either, added Caspel. I don't much like the sight of blood before bed. It keeps me awake. Well, you're in the wrong party, aren't you? Me? Caspel laughed. <laughs> My God, that's rich coming from a bastard like you, Gunther. How does an old social democrat like you come to be a police commissar working for a man like Heydrich anyway? I thought you'd been fired in 1932. I'll tell you sometime. Tell me now. No, but I'll tell you this. Something that directly affects you, Herman. It was a twelve-minute drive back down the mountain to Berchtesgaden, and finally alone with Caspel, I gave him Heydrich's letter and told him that in spite of our shared history, the general expected nothing less than the captain's total cooperation with my present mission. He pocketed the letter unread and said nothing for a while. Listen, Herman, I know you hate my guts. You got every reason to feel that way. But look here, you'll hate me even more if I have to tell Heydrich you are obstructive. You know how he hates to be disappointed in the people who work for him. If I were you, I'd forget how much you dislike me and throw in your lot with Gunther for now. You know, Commissar, I was thinking the same thing. There's all that, and there's this, too. You should remember from our time in Berlin that I'm cursed with being an honest cop. I'm not the type to take all the credit myself, so if you help me, I promise I'll make sure that it's recognized by Heydrich. Me? I couldn't care less if there's any career advancement at the end of this, but you might think differently about your own future. That's fair enough, but honestly, I had nothing to do with what happened back then. I might have been a Nazi and an SA organizer, but I'm not a murderer. I'll buy that. So then, we're looking out for each other, right? Not friends, no. Too much laundry there, but perhaps... Perhaps we're Bala boys from Berlin. Agreed? Bala was a Berliner's word for the kind of pal you made when you were drunk. On a Kremser van day trip to Schönholzer Heide Park in Pankow. The kind of pal that had inspired a dozen cruel folk songs mocking the Franz Bieberkoffs of this world who put no limits on drinking or pleasure or violence or all three at once. Now, that's what I call a worldview. Agreed. Caspel stopped the car for a moment on a wider bend of the meandering mountain road and then offered me his hand. I took it. Baller boys from Berlin, he said. In which case, as one baller boy to another, let me fill you in about our friend Dr. Karl Brandt. He's Hitler's personal physician here in Obersalzburg. That means that he's a member of the leader's inner circle. Hitler and Goering were the principal guests at his wedding in 1934, which means he's as arrogant as they come. Given that Bormann has asked Brandt to carry out this post-mortem, he won't have had any choice in the matter. But he certainly won't like having to perform the procedure in the middle of the night, so you'd be well advised to handle him with velvet gloves. Caspel produced a packet of cigarettes, lit us both, and then started driving again. At the foot of the mountain road, we crossed over the river and drove into Berchtesgaden, which was predictably deserted. Is he up to this? Brant? 
You mean, is he competent? Surgically speaking. He used to be a specialist in head and spinal injuries, so my guess is yes, probably, given that Carl Flex was shot in the head. But I'm not so sure about the hospital. Really, it's not much more than a clinic. There's a brand-new SS hospital under construction at the Stangas. That's what we call the Reichschancellery. But that won't open for another year. What do you mean, the Reichschancellery? Casper looked at me and laughed. That's all right. I was the same when I got here. A typical Berliner. That's why this place is run by a Bavarian mafia. Because Hitler doesn't trust anyone but Bavarians. Certainly not Berliners like you and me, who are automatically suspect in the leader's eyes of leaning to the left. Look, there's something you have to understand right now, Gunther. Berlin isn't the capital of Germany. Not any longer. No, really. I'm perfectly serious. Berlin is just for showcase diplomacy and propaganda purposes, the big set-piece parades and speeches. This crummy little Bavarian town is the real administrative capital of Germany now. That's right. Everything is run from Berchtesgaden. Which is why this is also the largest construction site in the country. If you didn't already know that after seeing the Kelstein house, which cost millions, by the way, then let me underline it for you. There's more new building being done here in Berchtesgaden and Obersalzburg than in the rest of Germany put together. If you can't believe that, then just look through those witness statements and see who was on that terrace yesterday morning. All of the country's leading civil engineers. Hermann Caspel drew up outside the only building in Berchtesgaden where the lights were on and stopped the engine. For someone who was in any doubt that this might be a hospital... They need only have looked at the wall and its mural of a woman wearing a nurse's uniform in front of a black Nazi eagle. Here we are. He took out his cigarette case, opened it, and then found a banknote, which he rolled into a tube. Give me one of those magic tablets, he said. Time to go to work. You're coming inside? I thought I might help. I thought you were squeamish about the sight of blood. Me? Whatever gave you that idea? Anyway, we're baller boys, right? Right. Bit of blood is par for the course when you're out on the piss and pankow, right? I nodded and handed him one of the Pervitin tablets, only he didn't swallow it. Instead, he crushed it on the flat metal of his cigarette case with the car key and then separated the powder into two small parallel white lines. One of the Luftwaffe pilots from the local airport showed me this little trick, he explained. When they have to make a night flight and they need to wake up or sober up in a real hurry, the best and quickest way to do it is with a hot rail like this. You're full of surprises, do you know that? Caspel laid the end of the tube in the powder and then inhaled it noisily through one nostril and then the other, at which point he shuddered, uttered a series of loud expletives, blinked furiously several times, and then hammered the steering wheel with the flat of his hand. Go and fuck yourself! He yelled. Go and fuck yourself! I'm on fire! I'm on fire! Oh, now that's what I call a fucking air force! He shook his head, and then let out a loud whoop that had me feeling more than a little alarmed, and wondering what effect Herman Temmler's magic potion was having on my own body. Now let's go and find the doctor, said Caspel. 
and hurried inside the hospital. Chapter 13, April 1939 Carl Brandt, who met us in a cold room in the hospital basement, was already dressed for surgery, but under his immaculate white overalls he was wearing the black uniform of an SS major, which looked like some sort of contradiction. He was a tall, strikingly handsome, stern-looking man in his mid-thirties with high cheekbones, light brown hair, and a very neat parting he touched nervously every so often with the side of his hand, as if there might be a wind in the hospital that would cause him to soon require the action of a comb. It was almost a leading man's face, the kind of face that might have found him a starring role in one of Dr. Goebbels's movies, except for the fact that there was something lacking in the man's cold, dark eyes. It was hard to think that this was the face of a healer. Rather, it seemed more like the face of a fanatic who might easily have prophesied the coming of a biblical flood and a new Cyrus from the north who would reform the church, or perhaps foretell the arrival of a new religion. A couple of years later, in Prague, I would come across his name again, in connection with the murder of General Heydrich. But at this particular moment, I'd never heard of him. He blinked at me with slow contempt as I stumbled my way through an apology, first for keeping him waiting, and then for the lateness of the hour. We came as soon as we heard you were here, Doctor. I apologize if you've been waiting for very long. If it had been up to me, I'd have said this could certainly have waited until first thing in the morning, but the Deputy Chief of Staff was most insistent that an autopsy should proceed with all possible speed. Of course, the sooner we find out exactly what happened to Dr. Flex, the sooner I hope to apprehend the culprit, and the sooner we can restore everyone's peace of mind, and the leader can return to his beautiful home. Sir, I don't know if you were acquainted with the victim, but if you were, I would like to offer you my condolences and to thank you for agreeing to perform what might well be a distressing task. If you weren't acquainted with him, I should like to thank you anyway. I do appreciate that forensic medicine is not your usual field, however— I assume you must have attended a post-mortem before in your capacity as a murder commission detective, he said, interrupting me with an impatient wave of his hand. In Berlin, wasn't it? Yes, sir, more often than I care to remember. It's been more than ten years since I was a medical student and did any real anatomy, so we may have need of that forensic memory. I might also require your assistance from time to time to help shift the body. Can you do that, Commissar? Yes, sir. Good. Since you mention it, I did know the victim. But this will in no way affect my ability to carry out the autopsy procedure. And I am as eager to find a satisfactory conclusion to this tragic affair as anyone. For the sake of my friend, it goes without saying. And for the leader's peace of mind, as you say. Well, let's get on with it. I haven't got all night. The body is this way. We don't have a pathology suite in this hospital. Sudden deaths are rare in Berchtesgaden and usually dealt with in Salzburg. The body is laid out in what passes for an operating theatre here, which is as good a place as any to carry out a post-mortem. Brandt turned on the heel of a highly polished jackboot and led the way into a brightly lit room, where the corpse of a very tall, thin man with a small beard, still dressed in his winter tweeds, was lying on a table. The apparent cause of death was immediately obvious. A large piece of skull, several centimeters square and still attached to his scalp, was hanging off the side of his blood-encrusted head like an open trap door, and half of the man's scrambled brain seemed to have spilled onto the table in the floor tiles, like fragments of minced meat in a butcher's shop. 
Carl Flex himself was staring up at the ceiling with open-mouthed astonishment. His wide blue eyes, unflinching against the bright light, almost as if he had seen the marvelous sight of the Lord's angel of death come to fetch him from one world into the next. It was a shocking sight, even for a murder-commissioned veteran like me. Sometimes the human body strikes me as more fragile than could reasonably be expected. Holy shit, muttered Caspel, and momentarily put his hand to his mouth. That's what I call a fucking head wound. Best get all of the cursing done now, gentlemen, Brant said coldly, stretching some rubber gloves onto his hands. Sorry, sir, but holy shit. Smoke if it helps you keep your mouth busy, Captain. It certainly won't bother me. I much prefer the sweet smell of tobacco to that of antiseptic. Or the sound of your cursing. Just as long as you don't pass out. Caspel needed no second invitation and immediately lit up but I shook my head at his open cigarette case when it came my way. I certainly didn't want anything interfering with my understanding of how Carl Flex had met his death. Besides, I needed both hands for the camera and was already taking pictures of the dead man with my expensive new toy. Is that strictly necessary? complained Brant. Absolutely, I answered, focusing on the ruined skull, which looked very like the empty shell of the boiled egg I had eaten for breakfast that morning. Every picture tells a story. I assume that all of the victim's personal effects have been removed from his pockets? Brandt asked Caspel. Yes, sir, he answered. They're in a bag on the table in the dispensary next door, awaiting the commissar's inspection. Good, said Brandt. Then we needn't worry too much about how we remove the victim's clothes. He handed me a pair of very sharp scissors. Then he fetched another pair, started to cut up the leg of the dead man's trousers, and invited me to do the same on the other side. All the same, it does seem a shame. I mean, look at this. He opened Flex's jacket to reveal a label. Hermann Scherer of Munich. If the suit wasn't already covered in blood, then one might have tried to save it. I put down the Leica and took hold of a trouser leg and was about to start using the scissors when a rather sleepy bee crawled out of the turn-up. What about saving this chap instead? It's just a bee, isn't it? said Brant. I need a bag, I said, allowing the bee to crawl on my hand for a moment, or an empty pill bottle. You'll find some in the dispensary, said Brant. With the bee still attached to the back of my hand, I went into the dispensary and found a small bottle. While I waited patiently for the bee to crawl inside, I glanced around, noting with some surprise that the dispensary seemed to be well stocked with losantin and natron. Why don't you take its photograph? Brant said through the open door. Maybe I will if I can get it to smile. Once the bee was bottled, I went back into the operating theater and set about catching up with Brant, whose sharp scissors had already progressed as far as the dead man's waist. Meanwhile, Brant had invited Caspel to remove the dead man's shoes, his thick socks, and his necktie. With the racks on tie, you're always well-dressed, said Caspel, repeating the company's famous advertising slogan. Unless it's like this one and covered with blood. By the way, said Brandt, slicing open the man's shirt like an impatient tailor, and then the vest that lay underneath. Beyond the obvious fact that he was shot in the head, what are we looking for? I'm not exactly sure. 
I mean, I could open his sternum and look for traces of poison if you want, but... Back in the trenches, I had a friend who was shot through the neck, I said. I kept pressure on it with my hand to stop him bleeding out like he was supposed to do, only to find that it was a second shot in the chest, which I didn't even see, that killed him. Life's full of surprises like that, and death more so. This man's been shot just the once, said Brandt. And that's what killed him, too. I'll stake my reputation on it. That's a shrewd guess, now that you've got his shirt open, sir, said Caspel. Caspel had Flex's shoes off and was inspecting the maker's label on the insole. Ooh, this fellow was a good German, all right. Caspel's constant chatter was drug-related, of course. I was feeling quite chatty myself. A real Nazi, I reckon. Why do you say so? I asked. Lingle shoes. Lingle shoes of Erfurt were fond of proclaiming their own Aryan purity, with the implication that other shoe manufacturers, Salamander, for example, were racially tainted. It was the sort of stunt that all sorts of German manufacturers had tried to pull since the enactment of the Nuremberg Laws in 1935. I sliced through the dead man's underpants. For some reason, Brandt had left them uncut, to expose his genitals. Does that look normal to you? I asked Brant. What do you want? A ruler? I was thinking about the color. His cock looks a bit red to me. Brant stared momentarily at Flex's genitals and then shrugged. I really couldn't say. But there was something about the dead man's cock that made me fetch my camera again. Brant winced and shook his head. You're a callous pair, I must say, observed Brant. I don't think he's feeling shy, sir, I said, and took a picture of Carl Flex's cock. And I'm certainly not planning to publish these in the local newspaper. I put down the camera and turned back to the table, where the dead man's clothes were now hanging off him like a second skin. And finally, we had arrived at the bloody ruins of Flex's head. This time we're looking for a bullet, I said, feeling around in the dead man's matted blonde hair. Sometimes you'll find one sticking to the scalp, or under a man's shirt collar, or even on the floor. I stirred the heap of brain matter on the table and on the floor with my forefinger, but there wasn't anything metallic in there. I was sure about that. I stood up and came back to the head. Brant was staring into the hole like a child standing over a rock pool. We're also looking for a bullet hole, I said. There's a hole, all right, said Brandt. As big as the Atta Cave, that one. This looks more like an exit wound, I said. I'm looking for a smaller one, an entry wound, perhaps. I felt around the scalp for a moment. By now, my hands were covered in sticky day-old blood. There seemed to be only one pair of rubber gloves in that theater. And here it is about two or three centimeters below the exit wound. Let me see, said Brandt. He let me guide his forefinger into a hole about the size of a fennig and then nodded. By God, you're right. It is a hole. Quite fascinating. Right on the occipital bone. The bullet enters here, just to the left of the lambdoid suture, and exits a few centimeters higher up in an explosion of temporal bone and brain matter. The people standing next to him must have been considerably bloodied. That's what I'm hoping, I said. 
Sometimes it's easily forgotten just how destructive a bullet wound can be. It is if you weren't in the trenches, I said. For anyone who was, like me and Captain Caspel here, this was an almost daily sight. Which is our excuse for what you call being callous. Mm, yes, I take your point, Commissar. Sorry. Can we get another picture, sir? Perhaps you could indicate this hole with a pen or pencil? You mean stick it in there? If you would, sir. Makes it easier to know what's what in the photograph, and how big the hole is. I rinsed my hands and then collected up the Leica, and when Brant was ready with his pencil, I took several pictures of the bullet hole. I suppose you would like me to search the skull cavity for any bullet fragments, said Brant. If you wouldn't mind, sir. Brant put his hand inside Flex's head and began to palp what remained of the brain in search of something hard. It looked like someone scooping out a pumpkin for St. Martin's Day. Given the state of the victim's cranium, it seems unlikely that we will find anything, he said. Chances are that any bullet fragments are lying somewhere on the Berghof Terrace. Agreed, sir, which makes it a pity that some helpful idiot thought to scrub the blood away. Still, we'd best make sure, I suppose. But after a while, Brant shook his head. No, nothing. Thank you anyway, sir. I suppose we'd better turn him over, Brant said helpfully, now that I've seen that entry wound, just to make quite sure, as you say. We cut the remainder of the clothes off Flex's body and then turned him over in search of another bullet hole. His thin white body was quite unmarked, but I took another picture anyway for my own memory's sake. By now, I was acutely aware of how much like a dead Christ Carl Flex actually looked. Perhaps it was the beard that did it, or the clear blue eyes. And perhaps all men look a bit like Christ when they're laid out for burial. Then again, perhaps that's the whole point of the story. But of one thing I was quite certain. With a head wound like that, it was going to take longer than three days for Carl Flex to be resurrected alongside the just and the unjust. That's going to be quite an album when you've finished, observed Caspel. Commissar, if you're in agreement with me, said Brandt, I'm going to record the cause of death as gunshot wound to the head. I agree. Then I think we've probably finished, don't you? said Brandt unless there's anything else you want me to do here. No, sir, and thank you. I'm very grateful for everything. Brant drew a sheet over the corpse and moved the clothes into a neat pile under the table with the edge of his boot. I'll have a medical orderly come in and tidy up first thing in the morning, he said. As for the body, what do you want to do with it? I mean, I imagine he must have some family somewhere. I followed Brant to the sink where he washed his hands. That's up to Martin Borman, I said. I understand that there's a need for discretion here, that there's a need to prevent the leader from being alarmed by this unfortunate event. Yes, uh, of course. Well, then, I'll let you ask him what's to be done with the corpse, shall I? I nodded. There is just one more thing, sir. You say you knew the man well. Can you think of anyone who might have wanted to kill him? No, said Brandt. Carl Flex had lived in the area for several years, and although he wasn't from this part of the world, he was from Munich, he was very well liked by almost everyone in Obersalzburg. At least, that was my impression. He was my next-door neighbor, more or less. My wife Annie and I live in Buchenhor, back up at the mountain, 
and a little farther east of the leader's territory. Lots of people who work in Obersalzburg live there. What were his interests? Reading, music, went to sports, cars. Any girlfriends? No, not that I know of. But he did like girls. I really couldn't say. I assume so. What I mean is he never talked about anyone in particular. Why do you ask? I'm just trying to paint a picture of the man and why someone shot him. Perhaps a jealous husband, or the aggrieved father of some unfortunate local girl. Sometimes the most obvious motives turn out to be the right ones. No, there was nothing like that. I'm certain of it. Now, if you'll excuse me, Commissar, I really have to get back to my wife. She's not at all well. Brant snatched off his overall and walked out without another word. I can't say he was much of a doctor, but it was easy to see why Hitler kept him around. Ramrods straight and with the solemn manner of a taper-bearer, he looked good in his black uniform. And while he didn't seem like the kind of doctor who had the cure for anything very much, he could certainly have frightened away a persistent cough or cold. He certainly frightened me. Chapter 14, April 1939 Well, he certainly wasn't much help, objected Caspel. The long streak of piss. It was 3.30 in the morning, and we were in the Berchtesgaden Hospital dispensary, going through Flex's personal effects, which I'd already photographed collectively several times. Caspel had compiled a list of the dead man's possessions, which I now had in my hand. It's cold fish like him that give the SS a bad name, right enough, I said. But as it happens, Dr. Brandt was a lot more help than you might think. How? It was you who found the entry wound, wasn't it? Not for what he told us, but maybe for what he didn't tell us. For example, Flex had a bad case of gonorrhea. Brandt didn't mention that, although if it was obvious to me, then it must have been obvious to him. So that's why you took a photograph of his cock, and I thought it was for your own personal smut collection. You mean the pictures I keep of your wife and sister? So you're the Fritz who's got them. A bad dose of jelly had certainly explained the presence of a bottle of Protargol on the list of Flex's personal effects, except that there's no Protargol here now. It would seem that someone's already removed it. That and the Pervitin, which also appears on your list. On the other hand, the dead man's money clip, rather a lot of money, several hundred marks, wasn't it? That's still here, along with all his other valuables. Oh, yes, you're right. The drugs are gone, aren't they? Pity. I was going to have that pervert in myself. My guess is that Brant removed them. Certainly he had more than enough opportunity while he was waiting for us to get here. Obviously he didn't know that like any good copper you'd already compiled this list. I took one of Caspel's cigarettes and let him light me with Flex's lighter. Now, as far as the Protargol is concerned, it may just be that as Flex's friend, he wanted to spare him the embarrassment of us discovering the deceased was taking silver protonate for a venereal disease. I suppose I can understand that. Just. I might do the same for someone I knew. If he was married, perhaps. This ends CD3. CD4. I can explain the meth, offered Caspel. 
There used to be a plentiful supply of the magic potion here in Berchtesgaden. They used to give it to the local P&Z workers to help them meet their construction deadlines. But lately the supplies seem to have dried up, at least for anyone who isn't in a uniform. I've heard that right now there are lots of civilians in Berchtesgaden who are desperate for some magic potion. Like I said, perverton can be quite addictive. So why is the supply dried up? Unofficially, the word around Hitler's mountain is that they're stockpiling the stuff for our armed forces in case there's a war. That the German military is going to need methamphetamine to stay awake long enough to beat the Poles. And presumably the Ivans when they come in on the Polak side. I nodded. Then that would also explain the presence of Lozantin and Natron in this clinic. I pointed these out on the shelves, and when Caspel shrugged, I added, Lozantin is used to treat skin burns caused by poison gas. Natron is used to neutralize chlorine gas. At least it was when I was in the trenches. It looks like someone is preparing for the worst, even in Berchtesgaden. I'll tell you something else that's missing, said Caspel, at least according to the list I made yesterday morning with Major Hergel. There was a little blue notebook and a small set of keys on a little gold chain that was around his neck. They're gone, too. Can you remember what was in the book? Numbers. Just numbers. So let's see what's left. Packet of Turkish eight. Everyone in the leader's territory smokes them, me included. A set of house keys, some loose change, a tortoiseshell comb, a pair of reading glasses, a leather wallet, civilian driving license... Weapons permit, employment identification document, hunting permit, NSDAP personal identity document, Aryan family tree record, a party badge, some business cards, a gold signet ring, a gold Imco lighter, a little gold hip flask, a gold wristwatch. Oh, this is a Jaeger Lacultra, which is really expensive. A pair of gold cufflinks, gold pelican fountain pen... Carl Flex liked his gold, didn't he? Even the money clip is eighteen carat. Caspel unscrewed the top of the hip flask and sniffed the contents. And then there's this Ortgeese thirty-two automatic, I said. Where was he keeping this, anyway? Under his waistband and his sock around his neck on a gold chain? It was in his jacket pocket, said Caspel. I tugged out the magazine and inspected it. Loaded, too. It would seem that our tall friend may have been expecting some trouble after all. You wouldn't carry this little hedge trimmer unless you thought you might actually need it. Especially up here. If he'd been found carrying that at the Berghof, he'd have been arrested, even with the civilian permit. Bormann's orders. Only the RSD are allowed to carry weapons in the leader's territory. And never inside the Berghof or the Kelstein, where the only person allowed to carry a gun is Bormann himself. Check it out if you want. There's always a lump in the right-hand pocket of his jacket. I pointed at the hip flask. What's a poison? Caspel took a bite from the hip flask and nodded his smiling appreciation. Ooh, that's the good stuff, same as Bormann drinks. I took a bite myself and then a deep breath. Grassel has that effect on you. On top of the methamphetamine, it felt like a dose of electric current running down my insides. I do love a job that lets me drink the best schnapps when I'm on duty. Caspel laughed and pocketed the hip flask. I think we'd better make sure this doesn't fall into the wrong hands. 
a Herman Scherer suit, Lingle's shoes, cashmere socks, silk underwear, a plutocrat's watch, and more gold than King Solomon's temple. He lived well, didn't he, for a civil engineer? I shrugged. What does a civil engineer do, anyway? He does very well, that's what he does. Caspel pulled a face. At least until he gets shot in the back of the head. That's right, isn't it? He was shot in the back of the head, not the front, like everyone thought before. Which means the shooter could have been in the woods at the back of the Berghof, like everyone thought. He shook his head. Beats me how we didn't find anything. You were there, in the woods? I commanded the search detail. You wouldn't get Rattenhuber or Hergel getting their boots dirty. No, that was me and my men. I'm going back there. Now that I've seen the body, I want to read all the witness statements in my new office, supposing that I do have an office, and then take a closer look at that terrace. I don't know what you expect to find, but I'll come with you. Don't you want to go home, Caspel? It's 3.30 in the morning. I do, but I'm flying now since I snorted the magic potion. Like I was in an ME-109. It'll be ages before I can even close my eyelids, let alone get some sleep. Besides, we're baller boys, right, from Pankow. We keep going till one of us collapses or gets thrown in jail. That's the way this thing works now. I'll drive you back up the mountain to the Berghof, and along the way I'll give you a few hard lumps of truth about this place. Chapter 15 April 1939 It had stopped snowing, and the night felt as if it were holding its breath. My own billowed in front of my face like a cloud over one of the mountaintops. Even at night it was a beautiful, magical place. But as with all stories involving magic in Germany, there was always a sense that my lungs and liver were already on someone's menu, that behind the lace curtains of one of these quaint little wooden houses, a local huntsman was sharpening his axe and preparing to carry out his orders to have me quietly killed. I shivered, and still holding the Leica, I pulled the collar of my coat up and wished that I'd also asked for a pair of warm gloves. I decided to add gloves to my list of requirements. Bormann, the lord of the Obersalzberg, as Caspel had called him, seemed willing to let me have almost everything else. Caspel opened the car door for me politely, his attitude now entirely different from that of the man I'd met an hour or two before. It was already clear that he'd changed a lot since leaving the Berlin police. The Nazis could do that to a man, even if he was Nazi. I was almost starting to like him. What's he like, Heydrich? he asked. Haven't you met him? Briefly, but I don't know him. I report direct to Neumann. I've met the general several times. He's smart and he's dangerous, that's what he's like. I work for him because I have to. I think even Himmler's afraid of him. I know I am. That's why I'm still alive. It's the same all over. If anything, it's worse here than in Berlin. So tell me how that works. He winced. Mm, I don't know, Gunther. Baller boys from Pankow and all that, yes. And I want to help you and the general. But I think we both know that there are things of which we cannot and should not speak. That's why I'm alive, too. It's not just P and Z workers who can end up having an accident. And if that doesn't work, Dachau concentration camp is less than 200 kilometers from here. 
I'm glad you mentioned Dachau, Herman. Three years ago, Heydrich sent me there to look for a man who was a convict, a fellow named Kurt Muchman, which meant I had to pose as a camp inmate myself. But after several weeks, the pose felt real enough. I was only able to get out of there by finding Muchman, and not until. Heydrich thought it was all very amusing, but I didn't. Look, I think you know I'm no Nazi. I'm useful to him because I don't put politics before common sense, that's all. Because I'm good at what I do, although I wish I wasn't. All right, that's fair enough. Caspel started the car. So then, this is not the harmonious rural idyll that Martin Bormann has described to you, Gunther. Nor is the leader popular here, in spite of all those flags and Nazi wall murals. Far from it. The whole of Hitler's mountain is riddled with disused tunnels and old salt mines. That's where the mountain gets its name, of course, from the salt. But the local geology provides a very good metaphor for how things are in Obersalzburg and Berchtesgaden. Nothing is what it looks like on the surface. Nothing. And underneath? Well, there's nothing sweet going on here. Herman Caspel steered across the river and drove us back up the mountain to the Berghof. It was a winding road, but in the moonlight we soon encountered a construction crew engaged in widening it to make things easier for anyone coming to see Hitler. Most of them were wearing traditional Tyrolean hats and thick jackets, and one or two of them even gave the Hitler salute as we drove by, which Caspel returned, but their expressions were churlish and wary. In the summer... There are as many as three or four thousand workers like those around here, explained Caspel. But right now there are probably only about half that number. Most of them are accommodated in local work camps at Alpengluen, Teugelbrunn, and Remmerfeld. Only don't make the mistake of thinking these men are forced into the work. Believe me, they're not. It's true that in the beginning the Austrian employment officers were ordered to refer all available workers to this site— the men they sent were wholly unsuitable to work in the Alps. Hotel clerks, hairdressers, artists. And lots of them got sick. So now it's just local Bavarians who are used, men with experience of working in the mountains. Even so, we've had a lot of trouble at the work camps. Drinking, drugs, gambling, fights about money. The local SS has its work cut out, keeping order with some of these fellows. Still, there is no problem getting workmen. These Obersalzburg administration workers are all very well paid. In fact, they're on triple time. And that's not the only attraction. Construction work in this area has been declared by Bormann to be a reserved occupation. In other words, if you work on Hitler's mountain, you won't have to serve in the armed forces. That's especially attractive right now, given that everyone thinks there's going to be another war. So you can imagine there's no shortage of volunteers. In spite of all that, the construction work up here is very dangerous, even in the summer. Explosions, like the one you heard earlier, are often used to create tunnels through the mountains, and there have been lots of accidents, fatal accidents, men buried alive, men who fall off mountaintops. Only three days ago, there was a big avalanche that killed several men. Then there are the constant delays caused by Hitler's regular presence in the area, he likes to sleep late and doesn't care for the sound of construction work. That means the work, when it does take place, has of necessity been around the clock. 
God knows how many men were killed building that fucking tea house on the Gelstein. Considerable risks were taken to get it ready in time for his 50th birthday. So there are a lot more widows around here than there need have been. That's caused a lot of resentment in Berchtesgaden and the surrounding area. Anyway, Flex worked for P&Z. And just to work for that company around here might provide someone with a pretty good motive for murder. But here's another. Nearly all of the houses and farms you see up on the mountain have been the subject of government compulsory purchase orders. Goering's house, his adjutant's house, Borman's house, the Turken Inn, Spears' house, Borman's farm, you name it. In 1933, all of the houses on the mountain were in private hands. Today, there's hardly one that isn't owned by the German government. It's what you might call real estate fascism, and it works like this. Someone in the government, now favored by Hitler or Bormann, needs a nice house to be near to the leader. So Bormann offers to buy such a house from its Bavarian owner. And you might imagine, with so few houses left in private hands, that it's a seller's market and a high price for such a house could be obtained. <laughs> Not a bit of it. Bormann always offers well below the market rate, and God forbid you should ever refuse his first offer. But if you do, here's what happens. The SS turn up out of the blue, block off your drive, and remove your roof. That is not an exaggeration. And if you still won't sell to the government, then you might easily find yourself sent to Dachau on some trumped-up charge, at least until you change your mind. Take the Villa Beckstein where you're staying, Gunther. It was formerly owned by a woman who was a keen supporter of Hitler. She gave him a new car when he came out of Landsberg prison, not to mention a nice new piano for his house, and probably quite a bit of money on top. But none of this mattered when the Lord of Obersalzburg decided he wanted a house for Nazi VIPs. She was obliged to sell just like everyone else, and for a knockdown price. That's how Hitler rewards his friends. It's a similar story for the Turken Inn. The fact is, the town of Berchtesgaden is full of small houses occupied by local Bavarians who used to own bigger houses on Hitler's mountain. And all of those people hate Martin Bormann's guts. In an effort to distance himself from this ill feeling, Bormann sometimes uses a man called Bruno Schenk to deliver his compulsory purchase orders. Or, more often, Bruno Schenk's man, Karl Flex. You want a motive for murder? There's another one for you. An excellent one. Bruno Schenk and Karl Flex were two of the most hated men in the area. If anyone deserved a bullet in the head, it was them, or Bormann's adjutant, Wilhelm Zander, whom you've already met at the Kelstein. Which means you're going to have a hell of a problem solving this case without stepping on Martin Bormann's corns. It's my private opinion that the corruption here goes even deeper than that, perhaps all the way through the mountain, if you see what I mean. Maybe as far as Hitler himself. I wouldn't be surprised if the leader is getting his ten percent of everything, because Bormann certainly does. Even from the Turkin shop, where the SS buy their smokes and their postcards. Seriously, Bormann always takes his lead from Hitler, and my guess is that it was Hitler put him up to this little money-making game. But that's not just idle speculation. <laughs> Let me tell you a little-known story about the house that Hitler bought. The House Wackenfeld, now called the Berghof, on which many more millions have been spent. Of course, he's been coming here since 1923, after the putsch, when he couldn't afford to do much more than rent a room at the House Wackenfeld. 
But in 1928, as his situation started to improve, he was able to rent the whole house from the owner, a widow in Hamburg by the name of Margareta Winter. By 1932, Hitler was rich from the sale of his book, and so he decided to make the widow an offer to buy the place. Because she was living in Hamburg, there was very little pressure he could apply to make her sell, and by all accounts, she didn't want to sell. But she was short of cash. Her husband had lost most of his money in the crash of 29, and they'd been obliged to sell his leather factory. Some local Jews bought it for a knockdown price. The widow hated those Jews even more than she disliked the idea of Hitler forcing her out of a house in Obersalzburg. So she offered him a deal. She'd sell the house to Hitler for 175,000 Reichsmarks if he also did her a favor. The very next day, that same leather factory was struck by lightning and it burned to the ground. Although it seems much more likely that it wasn't Mother Nature who destroyed it, but some local SA men, on Hitler's personal orders. That's a true story, Gunther. So you see, Hitler always gets what he wants by hook or by crook, and Martin Bormann does much the same. So if I understand you correctly, Herman, half the people I speak to are going to tell me nothing because they're afraid of Bormann, and the other half aren't going to tell me anything because they're hoping the murderer is going to get away with it, because they think that Carl Flex had it coming, in spades. Caspel grinned. That's a pretty fair description of your investigative task, yes. You're going to need to keep your cards so close to your chest you'll be lucky to see what suit they are. Heydrich wanted me to find some dirt on Borman. It sounds like this could be what he wanted. Have you told him any of this? No, but none of this will come as a big surprise to Heydrich. It was Borman who helped Himmler to buy his house. That's not in Obersalzburg, but in Schönau, about fifteen minutes from here. The Schnevenkellen. The place used to be owned by Sigmund Freud. Figure that one out. Anyway... Heydrich is certainly not going to try and take Bormann to task for doing something his own boss has done, too. Good point. He did ask me to see if there's any truth in a rumor that Bormann's being blackmailed by his own brother. I imagine Heydrich wants to know what Albert has on his brother so he can blackmail him as well. Now, what that might be, I don't know. All I know is that Albert Bormann has the other ear of Adolf Hitler— which means he's almost as powerful down here as Martin Bormann. You have to hand it to Hitler. He certainly knows how to divide and rule. We stopped at a checkpoint and once again presented our credentials to the frozen SS guard. A searchlight illuminating our car also showed me the size of the security fence. It wouldn't be easy to get over that, I said, even with a rifle in your hand. There's ten kilometers of that fence, said Caspel, with thirty separate gates, each with Zeiss Icon security locks. But the fence is often damaged by rock slides and avalanches and, well, sabotage. Even when it's undamaged, this perimeter fence doesn't mean shit. Oh, it looks good, and it makes the road secure enough, and I expect it makes Hitler feel safe. But everyone in the RSD is well aware that all those tunnels and private salt mines mean there are plenty of locals who can come and go as they please inside the perimeter. And what's more, they do. It's like Swiss cheese inside this mountain, Gunther. Hitler banned all hunting behind the perimeter wire fence because he's fond of little furry animals. But that doesn't stop people hunting there with total impunity. 
The best game to be had around here is in the leader's territory, and the chances are that your shooter is some local peasant who accessed the area through an old salt mine tunnel that his fucked-up inbred family has been using for hundreds of years. He was probably looking to pot a couple of rabbits or a deer, but he settled for a rat instead. Thanks for telling me all that, Herman. I appreciate your honesty. I grinned. Some beautiful scenery, a dead body, a lot of lies, and a dumbhead of a cop. You know, all we need is a pretty girl and a fat man, and I think it's safe to say that we have the ingredients for a Max Senate comedy. That's why I'm here in Oberzaltzburg, I guess. Because the Almighty enjoys a damn good laugh. Believe me, I should know. They say there's a grace in this world and forgiveness, only I don't see it because my own fucked-up, fallen-over-full-of-shit life has been keeping my dear father in heaven amused since January 1933. To be honest, I'm beginning to hope he chokes on it. Caspel pursed his lips and shook his head. You know, I've been twisting my brain for the reason General Heydrich should have sent you down here to Obersalzburg, Gunther. And maybe I'm starting to get a glimpse of his reason. You might just be in possession of a darker spirit than any of us. Herman, you've been away from Berlin for too long. You ever wonder why we have a black bear on our coat of arms? Because he's got a sore head, that's why. Everyone in Berlin is like me. That's why everyone else in Germany loves the place so much. Chapter 16, April 1939 We arrived on the northern side of the Berghof, where we were greeted on the stairs leading up to the terrace by a man I'd first met many years before. Arthur Kennenberg had once owned a garden restaurant in Berlin West, near Uncle Tom's cabin, called Fool's Weinund. But it went belly up in the crash, and the last I'd heard of Kennenberg, he'd left Berlin and gone to work in Munich, managing the officers' mess in the Nazi Party HQ. A small, round man with pale skin, very pink lips, hyperthyroidic eyes, and dressed in a gray track jacket, he greeted me warmly. Bernie, he said, shaking my hand. It's good to see you again. Arthur, this is a surprise. What the hell are you doing here? I'm the house manager here at the Berghof. Herr Bormann told me to expect you. So here I am, at your service. Thanks, Arthur, but I'm sorry if that meant you had to stay up so late. Actually, I'm used to it. The leader is a bit of a night owl, to be honest, which means I have to be one, too. Anyway, I wanted to make sure everything was arranged to your satisfaction. We've made an office for you in one of the spare rooms on the second floor. Caspel made himself scarce while I followed Cannonberg under a covered walkway and then entered a vestibule through a heavy oak door. Are you still playing that accordion of yours, Arthur? Sometimes, when the leader asks me to. With its low ceilings, dim lighting, red marble columns, and vaulted arches, the lobby area resembled a crypt in a church. Homely it wasn't. Cannonberg led the way upstairs, and we walked down an impressively wide corridor that was lined with pictures. He showed me into a quiet room with a cream-colored tile stove painted with green figures. The walls were clad in sanded spruce, and a wooden seat was built around a corner with a rectangular table. On the floor were several rugs and a wrought-iron basket full of logs for the wood-burning stove. 
There were two phones and a filing cabinet and everything I'd asked for, including fur-lined Hanvag boots. Seeing them, I sat down and put them on immediately. My feet were freezing. This will do very nicely, I said, standing up and stamping around the room for a moment to test my new boots. Kennenberg switched on a table lamp, lowered his voice, and leaned closer. Anything you need while you're here, and I do mean anything. You come to me, all right? Don't ask any of these SS adjutants. You ask them a question, they'll want to clear the answer with someone else first. You come to me, and I will sort you out. Just like we were back in Berlin. Coffee, alcohol, pills, something to eat, cigarettes. Only don't, for Christ's sake, smoke in the house. The leader's girlfriend, she smokes in her room with the window open, and she thinks he doesn't smell it. But he does, and it drives him mad. She's here now, and just because he's away, she thinks she can get away with it. But I can smell it in the morning. You're just across the hall from his private study, so please, Bernie, if you want a cigarette, take it outside. And make sure you pick up your butts. Anyway, I'll take you around the house in the morning. But for now, let me show you how close you are to him. Just to make the point about the cigarettes. We were standing in the doorway, and Cannenberg opened the opposite door and switched on a light to let me peek inside the leader's study. It was a spacious room with French windows, a green carpet, lots of bookshelves, a big desk, and a fireplace. On the desk was a pair of chest expanders, and above the fireplace was a painting of a pink-faced Frederick the Great when he was still a young man and probably just the crown prince. He was wearing a blue velvet coat and holding a sword and a telescope, as if he were expecting to admire the view from the leader's French window. I know I was. You see, you're just across the hall. Cannenberg picked up the chest expanders and put them in a desk drawer. He needs these because his right arm gets all the exercise, he explained sheepishly. Makes his left arm weaker. I know the feeling. He's a great man, Bernie. He glanced around the study, almost as if it were some sort of shrine. One day, this room, his study, will be a place of pilgrimage. Thousands of people already come here in the summer just to catch a glimpse of him. That's why they had to buy the Turkin Inn, to give him some peace and quiet. This is what this place is meant to be all about, peace and quiet. Well, it was, until yesterday morning's tragedy. Let's hope you can quickly restore things to how they were before. Cannenberg switched out the light and stepped back into the hall. Were you there, Arthur, when Carl Flex was shot? Yes, I saw the whole thing. Weber and the others were just about to adjourn to the new Platterhof Hotel to see how far things had progressed with the building work there when it happened. Weber? Hans Weber, the lead engineer from P&Z. I was standing about a meter away from Dr. Flex, I suppose. Not that I realized what had happened for a moment or two, mainly because of the hat he was wearing. Hat? I haven't seen any hat. It was a little Tyrolean green hat with feathers, like something a local peasant would wear. It was only when his hat fell off that anyone realized the extent of his injuries. It was as if his head had exploded from inside, Bernie. Like when an egg you're boiling just bursts open. I expect someone threw the hat away because it was soaked with blood. 
Do you think you could find that hat? I could certainly try. Please do. Was anyone else wearing a hat? I don't think so. And if they were, it wouldn't have been like that one. It wasn't what you'd call a gentleman's hat. I think Flex wore it because he thought it made him look like one of the locals, or a character. And was he? A character? I really couldn't say. But Cannonberg caught my eye, and placing a forefinger over his lips, he shook his head meaningfully. I know it's very late, Arthur, but I'd appreciate it if you could accompany me onto the terrace for a few moments and explain exactly what happened, just so that I can build a picture in my mind. We went downstairs. It's this way, through the Great Hall. How about that wife of yours, Frida? Is she here, too? She is, and she'll fix you a big Berlin-sized breakfast in the morning, whatever and whenever you want. The Great Hall was an oversized rectangle with a red-carpeted floor on two levels and a larger version of the hall on top of the Kelstein. On one side was a red marble fireplace, and on the northern side, the huge panoramic window. It was the sort of room where a medieval king might have given banquets and administered a rough kind of justice. Thrown a condemned man out of that window, perhaps. According to Cannonberg, the window was powered by an electric motor to wind it up and down, like a cinema screen. There was another grand piano, a huge tapestry of Frederick the Great again, and by the window a marble-topped table and an enormous globe, which did little to assuage any fears I had about Nazi Germany's territorial ambitions. Hitler's devotion to the example of Frederick the Great persuaded me that he must have often stood beside that globe and wondered just where he might send Germany's armies next. We crossed the upper level and exited the Berghof through the Winter Garden, which, in stark contrast to the Great Hall, looked like my late grandmother's sitting room. Outside, on the freezing terrace, the arc lights were shining brightly, and several RSD men, including Caspel, were awaiting my arrival. So, said Cannonberg, heading straight for the low wall that bordered the terrace. Dr. Flex was standing here, I think, next to Bruckner, one of Hitler's adjutants. Was Bruckner wearing a uniform? No, Everyone was looking at the Untersberg. That's the mountain that can be seen on the other side of the valley. Everyone except Dr. Flex, that is. He was looking in the opposite direction. Straight up at the Hoa girl. Like I am now. You sure about that, Arthur? Absolutely. I know, because he was looking at me. I wasn't really part of their discussion. I was just sort of hanging around waiting for Huber or Dimrot. He's the head engineer from Saga and Werner, to tell me that they were finished breakfast, or that they were ready to go to the Platterhof. But it could just as easily have been Flex who told me. And at the moment he fell, I was looking right at him, as if that's what he was going to say. So he's taller than everyone else, right? Yes. And wearing a little green Tyrolean hat, correct? Correct and facing you instead of down the valley. That's right. And you're standing where? Cannonberg crossed the terrace and stood in front of the Winter Garden's window. Here. Just here. Thank you, Arthur. We'll take it from here. You go to bed like a good fellow, and I'll see you later on today. 
And if there's time, you can tell me about Berlin. I miss it sometimes. Oh, and Arthur, see if you can find me a pair of gloves. My hands are freezing. I went back inside to fetch the camera from my office on the first floor where I'd left it, and then returned to the terrace where Caspel was now smoking a cigarette. Seeing me, he stubbed it out very carefully on the wall, and then placed the butt in his coat pocket. I smiled and shook my head. If I hadn't thought Hitler was crazy before coming to the Berghof, I did now. Where was the harm in a few lousy cigarettes? I took a short walk around the terrace and then came back to Caspel. Hey, I just had a thought, Caspel said. If he was facing up the mountain and the shot hit him in the back of the head, then... Exactly. I pointed into the darkness that lay beyond the terrace to the north, toward Berchtesgaden at the bottom of the mountain. The shooter was down there somewhere, Herman, not in the woods or up there. No wonder you didn't find anything. The shooter was never there. I glanced around the terrace and saw a neat stack of wooden doweling in the corner. I fetched a length and carried it to the edge of the terrace. The question is, where exactly was he positioned? Where would a man with a rifle get the sort of cover he'd need to avoid discovery long enough to take a shot at this terrace? I handed Caspel the wooden doweling. Flex was taller than me, about the size of that man there. I pointed at one of the sleepy-looking SS men awaiting our orders, who was also the tallest. You, you're about the same height as Flex. Come here. Come on, Germany awake, right? The SS man moved smartly toward the wall. What's your name, son? Dornberger, sir. Walter Dornberger. Walter, I want you to take off your helmet and turn to face away from the valley. And I want you to pretend to be the man who was shot. If you don't mind, I want to borrow your head for a moment. Herman, you hold the doweling in position alongside his head where I tell you. Right you are, said Caspel. I put my finger at the bottom of the SS man's skull. Entry wound about here. Exit wound about six to eight centimeters higher. Perhaps more. But it's hard to be more accurate given the skull damage. If we had the dead man's hat, of course, we would have an actual bullet hole, which might enable us to plot the bullet's trajectory. It was at this moment that Cannonberg returned carrying a hat with a four-cord rope band and a pin that was a fisherman's fly. Made of green loden wool and with a two-inch brim, the hat was heavily stained with blood. On the inside especially, it looked as if someone had used it as a gravy boat. But it was quite dry, and a small hole was clearly visible in the crown where the assassin's rifle bullet had exited. This is the hat, explained Cannenberg. I found it on the floor by the incinerator. Well done, Arthur. Now we're getting somewhere. This time, Cannenberg waited to see what I was about to do with the SS man and the doweling and the gnome's hat I was holding. I pushed the doweling through the hole and then asked the SS man if he wouldn't mind putting the hat in his head for a moment. Now then, I told Caspel, lower the end of the doweling a few centimeters to where we thought the bullet entered Flex's skull. That's it. Quickly, I took some photographs and then inspected both ends of the doweling one pointing up at the wooden balcony immediately above the terrace, and the other pointing over the edge of the wall and down the valley. After a moment or two, I removed the green hat from the SS man's blonde head and laid it on the ground. 
Arthur, I'm going to need you to show Walter here where you found the hat. Walter, I want you to go to the incinerator, get down on your hands and knees, and see if you can't find a spent bullet. And Arthur, I'm going to need a ladder so that I can climb up and take a closer look at that balcony. Right away, Bernie, said Cannonberg. We're going to see if we can find the spent bullet up there in the woodwork on that balcony, I explained. One single silver bullet. Why silver? asked Caspel. I didn't answer, but the truth was I couldn't see the point of anyone shooting a rifle bullet at the terrace of Hitler's private residence unless it was made of a melted-down silver crucifix. Chapter 17 April 1939 We didn't find a single bullet lodged in the woodwork of the Berghof second-floor balcony, because by the time it was light, we'd found four of them. Before gouging out these bullets with my boker knife, I marked each of their positions with a piece of Lohman tape and then photographed them. I was beginning to wish I'd asked for a photographer as well as a Leica, but the truth was, I was hoping to pocket the Leica when the case was over and sell it when I was back in Berlin. When you're working for people who are mostly thieves and murderers, a little of it comes off in your hands now and then. From the second-floor balcony at the Berghof, it was clear exactly why Hitler had chosen this place to live in. The view from the house was breathtaking. It was impossible to look at this view of Berchtesgaden and the Untersberg behind it without hearing an alphorn or a simple cowbell. But not Wagner. At least not for me. Give me a cowbell any day to the high priest of Germanism. Besides, a cowbell only has one note, which is a lot easier on the backside than five hours in the Bayreuth Festival Hall. In truth, I spent very little time admiring the postcard view from Hitler's Mountain. The sooner I was away from there and back to the combusted blue air of Berlin, the better. And so with Hermann Caspel holding one end of the measuring tape at the top of the ladder, I retreated to the wall at the edge of the terrace in the place where Flex had been shot and positioned the length of dowling like a rifle along the same descending angle. Would you agree, I asked Caspel, that the end of this piece of dowling seems to be pointing toward those lights to the west of here? Yes. What is that building? That is probably the Villa Beckstein, the place where your assistant is currently staying. Yes, I'd forgotten about Korsh. I hope he slept better than me. I glanced at my watch. It was almost seven o'clock. I'd been in Obersalzburg for seven hours, but it felt like seven minutes. I suppose that was the methamphetamine. And, of course, I knew I was going to have to take some more, and soon. Well, we'll soon find out because that's where we're going just as soon as we've had breakfast in the leader's dining room. To the Villa Beckstein. Korsh can go and find a ballistics expert to look at these bullets and tell us some more about them while I unpack my bag and clean my teeth. Maybe get this film developed, too. Caspel came down the ladder and followed me through the winter garden, the great hall, and into the dining room, where there was too much knotted pine paneling and a built-in display cabinet that contained various pieces of fussy-looking china with a dragon design. I hoped they might be fire-breathing dragons, because for all its pretensions to grandeur, the room was cold. There were two tables, a smaller round one and a bay window set for six, 
and a larger rectangular one set for sixteen. Caspel and I took the smaller table, threw off our coats, drew up two terracotta red leather armchairs, and sat down. Without thinking, I tossed my cigarettes onto the tablecloth. Somewhere I could smell fresh coffee brewing. Are you serious? said Caspel. Sorry, I forgot our orders. Hurriedly, I put the cigarettes away, seconds before a waiter wearing white gloves appeared in the room, as if he had materialized out of a brass lamp to grant us both three wishes. But I had a lot more than three. Coffee, I said, lots of hot coffee, and cheeses, lots of cheeses, and meats, too. Boiled eggs, smoked fish, fruit, honey, plenty of bread, and more piping hot coffee. I don't know about you, Herman, but I'm hungry. The waiter bowed politely and went away to fetch our German breakfast. I had high hopes of the kitchen at the Berghof. If you couldn't get a good German breakfast at Hitler's house, then all hope was surely lost. No, said Caspel. I meant are you serious about an investigation at the Villa Beckstein? That place is for Nazi VIPs. Is that what I am? That's interesting. Never saw myself that way before now. They put you there because it's the nearest place to the Berghof that's not someone else's house, so you wouldn't have too far to go. Very considerate. I don't suppose Bormann ever considered that you might be looking for a gunman at the Villa Beckstein. The deputy leader Rudolf Hess himself is due to arrive any time now. Doesn't he have his own house? Not yet, and actually Hess doesn't really like it here. Even brings his own food, so he doesn't come that often. But when he does, he always stays at the villa with his dogs. I'm not fussy who I stay with, or what I eat, as long as there's plenty of it. I glanced around, disliking the dining room almost as much as I disliked the great hall. It was like being inside a walnut shell. I guess this must be the new wing we're in now. Borman isn't going to like it. We'll burn that bridge when we come to it. No, really, Bernie. Relations between Bormann and Hess are already poor. If we start poking our noses around the Villa Beckstein, Hess is likely to view it as an attempt to undermine his authority as deputy leader. Bormann's gonna like it even less if I don't catch this shooter and soon. Look, Herman, you saw where those bullets were. They're the angles we have to work with, just like in billiards. Maybe someone who works there didn't like Flex. Who knows, maybe the butler got bored and stuck a rifle out of the master bedroom window to see who he could hit on the terrace. I always like the butler for a murder. They've usually got something to hide. The coffee arrived, and I took out my cigarettes again before putting them away. Again. It's only when your habit bothers someone else that you start to notice how much of a habit it really is. So I swallowed a couple of pervitin with the coffee and bit my lip. What happens to people who smoke in this fucking house? I said, seriously, are they sent to Dachau? Or are they just hurled off the Tarpeian rock by locals high on meth? Give me a couple of pills, said Caspel. I'm starting to slow down. And I've a feeling I'm going to need to keep going for a while longer. Could be. I laid the four misshapen bullets on the tablecloth. They looked like the teeth from a witch doctor's kit bag. Who knows? Maybe they would enable me to divine the name of Flex's murderer.
Stranger things had happened in the ballistics lab at the Alex. There are five bullets in a standard rifle magazine, I said. That means either our murderer shot at Carl Flex four times and missed, or he tried to shoot more than one man on the terrace. But why didn't anyone hear anything? If the shots came from somewhere as close as the Villa Beckstein, someone must have heard shots being fired, even the butler. This is supposed to be a secure area. You heard the explosion, said Caspel. The one made by the construction workers. And especially first thing in the morning, shots are often fired to make small avalanches up on the Hoagol in order to prevent larger ones. So it's possible that people did hear a shot and connected it with an avalanche. Equally, there are lots of historic shooters clubs in Berchtesgaden that like to meet up on public holidays and discharge old black powder weapons, blunderbusses, and dragoon pistols. Any excuse. Frankly, we've tried to put a stop to them, but it's no use. They pay no attention. The waiter returned with an enormous breakfast tray on which was a large piece of honeycomb still attached to the wooden tray that had come out of the hive. Seeing it, I let out a groan of childish excitement. It had been a while since anyone in Berlin had seen honey. My God, that's what I call luxury, I said. Ever since I was a boy, I've never been able to resist honeycomb. Even before the waiter had laid all the things on the breakfast table, I'd gouged off a piece, scraped off the beeswax capping with my knife, and started sucking the honey greedily. Is it local? I looked at the label on the side of the wooden tray. Honey from the leader's own apiary at Landlervault. Where's that? On the other side of the Kelstein, said Caspel. The deputy chief of staff is an expert on agriculture. That's Bormann's background, you know. He trained to be an estate manager. The Gutshof is a farm that produces all sorts of produce for the Berghof, including honey. When we drive up the mountain, the main farmhouse is on our left. There's 80 hectares of farmland, all the way around the mountain. I'm beginning to see why the leader likes it here so much. I want to talk to someone at that apiary. I'll speak to Kannenberg, said Caspel. He'll fix it with hair the fellow who's in charge of things at the Landlevald. But why? Let's just say I have a bee in my bonnet. Not long after we'd finished eating breakfast, several of the other men who'd also been on the terrace when Flex was shot turned up. Frieda Kannenberg came and told me the engineers were waiting for me in the Great Hall. How many are there? Eight. Is anyone else likely to come in here for breakfast? No she said. Frau Braun usually has breakfast in her own rooms upstairs with her friend, and Frau Truss doesn't ever eat breakfast. Very well, I told Frida. I'll see him in here, one at a time. Frida nodded. I'll tell the waiter to bring some fresh coffee. Chapter 18, April 1939 The first man I spoke to was the state engineer August Michaelis. He was a handsome man wearing military uniform who bowed politely as he presented himself at the breakfast table. I stood up, shook his limp hand, and then invited him to sit down and help himself to coffee. I opened my file of witness statements and found the list that Hergel had compiled. You're the head of the State Construction Bureau for Deutsche Alpenstrasse, is that right? 
That's correct. I thought there would be more of you out there. According to my list, there were twelve people on that terrace yesterday morning, including the dead man. And yet there are only eight people here at the Berghof today. Professor Fich, the architect, I believe he had to go to Munich to meet with Dr. Tote and Dr. Buhler, as did Professor Michaelis. I shrugged. How is it that people feel they can absent themselves so quickly from a murder investigation? You'd have to ask them, and you'll forgive me for saying so. I'm not sure what else I can add to the statement I made to Captain Caspel yesterday. In spite of his uniform, he seemed uncertain of himself. He didn't even pour himself a coffee. Probably not much, I said. Only your statement was about what happened, what you saw. I'm more interested to hear what the meeting was all about. Martin Borman was rather vague about that. All these very well-qualified engineers meeting up at the Berghof. I'm sure there must have been something of real importance that brought you all together. And I'd also like to hear more about Dr. Flex. The state engineer looked thoughtful for a moment and played with a rather scabby-looking earlobe that he'd clearly worried before. So, I said, what was the purpose of the meeting? It's a regular meeting, once a month. And is this meeting well known about generally? There's nothing secret about it. In order to accomplish the transformation of the Obersalzberg in accordance with Herr Bormann's wishes, it's necessary that from time to time we meet to review the progress of construction work. For example, there's the construction of the new Platterhof Hotel, which has required the demolition of almost fifty old houses. Also the construction of new technical installations, such as an electricity supply station. The current from Berchtesgaden has proved to be unreliable. At present, we are laying new electrical and telephone cables in the area, widening access roads and digging new access tunnels. This requires skilled workers, of course. I'd like to take a look at this work sometime, I said. You'll have to ask Borman, said Michaelis. Some of the work is for the security of the leader and therefore secret. I should need to see something in writing and signed by him in order to answer a question like that. So it's military, then? I didn't say that. All right, that's fair enough. I will ask Borman. So tell me about Dr. Flex instead. Did you know him well? No, not well. Can you think of a reason why anyone would want to kill him? Any reason at all? Frankly, no. Really? Michaelis shook his head. You know, it's strange, Herr Michaelis. I've been here in Obersalzburg for less than ten hours, and yet I've already heard that Karl Flex was one of the most unpopular men in the Bavarian Alps. I wouldn't know. But you're speaking to the wrong person. So who should I be speaking to? Ludwig Gross, Otto Staub, Walter Dimrot, Hans Hauptner, Bruno Schenk, Hanus and the Clairvoyant? Who? Give me a clue. I'm supposed to solve a murder here. If everyone on this damn list is as uninformative as you, that might take a while. For obvious reasons, I'd like to be gone before summer. I don't mean to be unhelpful, Commissar Gunther. The two men who worked most closely with him and knew him best were Hans Hauptner and Bruno Schenk. Schenk's the first administrator and had worked closely with Flex. I'm sure he could tell you more than I can. That wouldn't be difficult. Michaelis shrugged, and suddenly I was having a hard job holding on to my temper. 
although quite possibly that was the magic potion kicking in again. My heart was already working like it was being paid treble time. A busy man, is he, Dr. Shank? I should say so, yes. He's what we call the fire brigade man for sensitive situations involving local construction work. Let's talk about you, Herr Michaelis. Are you popular in Berchtesgaden? I have no idea. Is it possible that someone would like to kill you, too? I mean, apart from me. Like someone who used to own one of those fifty houses you mentioned just now, the ones that were demolished? No, I don't think so. Has anyone ever threatened you? Perhaps even told you they were going to shoot you? No. I spread the four spent bullets across the tablecloth like a waiter's crummy tip. You see these? These are four bullets we found in the woodwork of the balcony immediately above the terrace, so it's just possible the gunman took a shot at you, too, maybe more than one, and missed. How about it? No, I'm sure there isn't anyone. I hope you're right, August. You're a brainy fellow, I can tell, and I'd hate to see those brains end up on someone's floor like Carl Flex's just because you couldn't quite bring yourself to tell me if there's anyone you know who'd like to kill you, too. If the shooter did try to murder you, then he might try again, you know. Is that all? he said stiffly. Yes, that's all. Oh, ask Dr. Schenk if he'd mind coming in here next, would you? Bruno Schenk was about forty years old with a high forehead and an even higher manner. He wore a gray suit, a neat white shirt and collar, and a tie with a party pin. He wasn't much taller than his walking stick, but he was the section head of Polanski and Zollner, with responsibility, he quickly informed me, for building all of the connecting roads between the Kelstein and Berchtesgaden, which made him feel taller, I suppose. I hope this won't take too long, he added to the pompous sum total of that. I'm a busy man. Oh, I know, and I appreciate you coming here to help me out with my questions. What do you want to know, Commissar? P and Z. That must be a rich company by now with all this construction work. Paid for by the state, I believe. PNC, Zaga and Werner, Danneberg and Quant, Umstetter, Reck Brothers, Hörchtel and Sauer, Hochtief, Philipp Holtzmann. There are more companies contracted to do work here by the Obersalzberg administration than you could possibly imagine, Commissar. And more work than anyone might reasonably conceive. I could tell that I was supposed to be impressed by all that. I wasn't. As first administrator, you must be an important man. I enjoy the confidence of the deputy chief of staff in all matters affecting building development on the mountain, that's true. Between Martin Bormann and myself, there's only the chief administrator, Dr. Reinhardt, who is tasked with more responsibility. Shank's voice and his grammar were no less correct than his appearance, and most of the time he didn't even look at me, as if I were beneath his influence and concern. Instead, he turned his coffee cup on its saucer, one way and then the other, as if he wasn't sure which way the handle should face, toward him or toward me, a bit like a snake trying to decide where it should park its rattle. He didn't know it yet, but he was looking for a slap. So, tell me about the work, I said. I'm interested. Perhaps another time, 
he said. But today's my birthday. I have a number of appointments to keep before an important luncheon date with my wife. Congratulations, I said. How old are you, anyway? Forty. If you don't mind my saying so, you look older. Schenk frowned for a moment but tried to contain his irritation, the way I'd just contained my own. I was being given the runaround and getting tired of it. There seemed little point in my murder investigation having the full backing of Martin Borman if no one else around the Berghoff seemed to appreciate this. It was beginning to look as if I would have to get tough with someone, tougher than I'd been with August Michaelis, if I were to make some progress before Borman saw me. Bruno Schenk looked made for a little roughhousing. I always say if you're going to get tough with someone, you might as well enjoy it. Then again, I said, I expect with all of the responsibilities resting on your shoulders, the work takes its toll on a man. Yes, it does. We've had to accomplish some massive tasks in less time than was needed. The Kelstein Tea House, for example. That particular feat of engineering gave Herr Bormann's previous adjutant, Captain Selma, a heart attack. And as one thing ends, another begins. The Platterhof Reston Road has had to be entirely replanned because a bridge has had to be built. And just consider this, Commissar, that all the work has to be achieved without damaging a single tree. The leader is most insistent that trees are to be preserved at all costs. Well, that's reassuring anyway, about the trees. We certainly need lots of those in Germany. Exactly what is the Platterhof, sir? A people's hotel, formerly the Pension Moritz, that is being created using only the finest materials to house the many eager visitors who come to see the leader when he's here. Currently, it's one of the largest projects in Obersalzburg, and when it's complete, it will be one of the finest hotels in Europe. I wondered just how many would come when the whole of Europe was at war. Perhaps some, looking for Hitler's head on a stick. Or perhaps none at all. Schenk looked at his watch, which reminded me that it was time for me to put him on the spot. Or at least to try. He was slippery. Well, I won't keep you, sir. I can see you're a very busy man. I just wanted to ask you why you think that your assistant Carl Flex was one of the most hated men in the area, and if perhaps you might believe that someone local might have shot him out of revenge for being overzealous in carrying out your instructions, such as serving a compulsory purchase order on the original owners of the Pension Moritz, perhaps, or demanding more of your local workers than seemed at all reasonable. Men have been killed, I believe. Perhaps unnecessary risks were taken. That's the kind of thing that can easily produce a motive for murder. I really couldn't speculate on such a distasteful thing. And I don't mean to teach you your duties, Commissar, but you shouldn't ask me to either. You're the detective, not me. I'm glad you understand that, sir. And I'm under a certain amount of pressure, too, from the same man as you, I believe. So please don't think I take my job any less seriously than you do yours or that it's any less important. In fact, right now, I rather think that my job may be more important. You see, last night when I met Martin Borman, he told me two things. One was this, and I'm quoting him here. 
When I talk, it's as if the leader were here now telling you what the fuck to do. And the other thing he told me was that I enjoyed his full authority to catch this man before the leader's own birthday, which is in a week's time, as I'm sure I don't have to remind you, Dr. Shank. His full authority. Isn't that right, Herman? That's right. Those were his exact words. His full authority. It was my turn to bang a tabletop. So I did. And Shank's coffee cup bounced pleasingly on its saucer. So I banged the table a second time and stood up to make my point even more forcefully. I might even have smashed a cup or a saucer on the engineer's carefully combed head, but for the A.H. monogram on the pattern, which gave me a little pause for thought. The meth was coursing through me now, and even Caspel was looking surprised. His full authority, I yelled. You hear that? So think again, and think fast, Dr. Shink. I want some better answers than another time today's my birthday, and I really couldn't speculate, and you're the detective, not me. What are you wasting my time for? I'm a policeman and a commissar to boot, not some fucking toothless peasant with a pickaxe in his hand and a dumb look on his gormless face. It's a murder I'm trying to solve, a murder at the leader's house. It isn't the crossword in today's newspaper. If Adolf Hitler can't come down here next week because I couldn't catch this maniac, then it won't just be my guts hanging on the leader's perimeter fence. It'll be yours and every other tongue-tied bastard who calls himself an engineer on this fucking mountain. And as the first administrator, you better make sure they know that. Do you hear? It was all an act, of course, but Schenk didn't know that. I must say, you have a most violent temper, said Schenk. He flushed the same color as the chair he was on and stood up. Only I put my hand on his shoulder and shoved him back down. I could be a bit of a bully myself when I tried. Only I never once thought I'd be trying to pull it off in Hitler's own dining room. I was starting to like Dr. Temmler's magic potion. Caspel seemed to like it, too. At least he was smiling as if he'd been wanting a chance to slap Shank himself. Most violent and unpleasant. You haven't seen anything yet. And I'll tell you when I'm through stiffening your ears, Dr. Shank. I want a list of names. People you've upset and pissed off. Maybe one or two of them threatened you and your boy Flex. You and he have done a lot of that, haven't you? Shank swallowed uncomfortably and then raised his voice. Anything I have done has been done with the full knowledge of the deputy chief of staff himself, with whom I shall certainly be lodging a formal complaint regarding your egregious conduct. You do that, Bruno. Meanwhile, I shall certainly call General Heydrich in Berlin and have the Gestapo take you into custody, for your own protection, of course. Salzburg, isn't it, Herman? The nearest Gestapo HQ? That's right. In an old Franciscan monastery on Mozartplatz. And a horrible place it is, too, sir. Even the spirits of the saints walk carefully past that monastery. We can have him there in half an hour. You hear that, Bruno? And after you've had a few days in a cold cell on bread and water, we'll talk again and see how you feel then about my conduct. But please, you've no idea how bad things had got here. He bleated. 
For example, on the southern side of the house Wackenfeld, there was a path for cows, which local sightseers were starting to use to catch a glimpse of the leader, even in bad weather. Local farmers were charging visitors, some of whom would even bring binoculars to get a better look at him. This situation had become unacceptable, and the leader's security was becoming compromised. And in 1935, we began to purchase property around the house piece by piece, lot by lot. But as in the beginning, Hitler didn't allow us to apply pressure on these property owners, we were obliged to pay some outrageous prices. Local farmers, many of whom had been heavily indebted before, were now making a fortune from selling their little gold mines. This had to stop, and in due course it did. In order to establish the transformation of the Obersalzburg the way the leader wanted it, We've had to demolish over fifty houses, and yes, it's true that some of these people were not happy with the price they received in comparison with the price they were asking. Please, Commissar, there's no need to involve Himmler and Heydrich, is there? They are involved, I snarled back. Who do you think it was to ask me to come here? Now go out there and speak to your colleagues waiting in the Great Hall, and when I come back here, I want a list of names. Resentful workers, angry homeowners, sons of aggrieved widows, anyone with a grudge against you, Flex, or even Martin Borman. Understood? Yes, yes, I'll do as you say, immediately. I grabbed my coat and walked out of the dining room. I'd enjoyed my breakfast, but I'd eaten too much. Either that, or talking to a Nazi like Schenk just gave me a rotten feeling in my stomach. I don't know where any of this is going to go, said Caspel, following me out of the Berghof and down the icy steps to the car. But I do like working with you. Chapter 19, April 1939 The Villa Beckstein was a five-minute drive down the hill from the Berghof and on the other side of a stone-built SS guardhouse that covered the entire road. Caspel told me that after Helen Beckstein had been obliged to sell her house to Borman, Albert Speer had lived there while his own house and a studio much farther to the west was being constructed to his own design. Having seen quite a bit of Speer's architectural talent on show in Berlin, I doubt it could have improved on the Villa Beckstein, which sat in a nest of deep snow like a fancy gingerbread house. It was a large three-story villa with two wraparound wooden balconies, a high mansard roof with a dormer window, and a bell tower made of marzipan and chocolate. It was the sort of house you could only have afforded if you'd been Martin Bormann or someone who sold a great many pianos to a great many Germans. Almost immediately I got out of the car, I turned and looked back up the mountain at the Berghof, only there were several trees in the way. From inside the hallway, a butler had appeared, hovering silently in the doorway like a black-and-white dragonfly. He bowed gravely and then ushered me up the heavy wooden stairs to the second floor. The house might have been old, but everything had been recently refurbished and was of the very highest quality, which is a style of interior decoration that always seemed to suit the simple tastes of the rich and powerful. Has the deputy leader arrived yet? I asked the butler, who answered with a local accent to the name of Winkelhoff. Not yet. We expect him sometime this morning, sir. He'll be occupying his apartments on the upper floor as usual. You'll hardly notice each other. I had my doubts about that. 
Top Nazis aren't known for being shy and retiring. At the top of the stairs was a long case clock with a Nazi eagle on top, and next to this a life-sized bronze nude of a bewildered woman who looked as if she was trying to find the bathroom. This ends CD4.